Now, we are in a series entitled A Bible Survey. And what you do in a Bible survey is you go through all the books in the Bible and you talk about what each book is about, when each book was written, and how all the books are interconnected. And in parts one, two, and three of our series, we've already covered the Old Testament, the four Gospels, and the book of Acts. And it was my intention to make this a four-part series, and in part four, to do all 21 letters in the New Testament and the book of Revelation. And when we got there, we all agreed that was absurd. You can't possibly do all of that in one message. And so we agreed that we were going to elongate the series so that we had time to do justice to all of these letters of the New Testament, which really form uh, the foundation and the backbone to our Christian faith. And so that's what we're doing. Let's review just a little bit before we pick back up. Remember we saw that the word epistle simply means a letter. And that after the Gospels and the book of Acts, pretty much the rest of the New Testament is made up of these 21 New Testament epistles or letters, 14 of which were written by the Apostle Paul, and seven of which were written by other various apostles. And we've got a chart in your bulletin that lays out the New Testament and these letters, and then also on the back, puts Paul's letters into a chronology in light of the events of his life. And one thing that we also saw uh, is that Paul's letters in the New Testament are not in chronological order. Rather, they are grouped into two sections. Section number one, the letter to the Romans through the letter to Second Thessalonians. These were letters Paul wrote to the churches. And then section two... Uh, that is running basically from 1 Timothy through the book of Hebrews. These are letters that Paul wrote to individuals. And we said, you know, we could resort them and, and we could put them in chronological order, but that would be so confusing for all of us that we said, why don't we just take them in the order the New Testament has them? And so that's what we're doing. And the last time that we were together, we started by covering the book of Romans. And what we saw is that in Romans, as in every other church letter, Paul follows the very same pattern. And that is, in the beginning of the letter, he covers theological issues, and in the end of the letter, he addresses more Christian living, everyday Christian life issues. And as I said, we covered Romans last time. We have an enhanced CD for you out in our lobbies at all of our campuses. And what we mean by an enhanced CD is that not only is the audio available, but also we have all of the notes, all of the PowerPoint, all of the maps on, an, on a Word doc, so you got all the information, and, and the reason we're doing this is because I don't want you to sit in here and try to take notes. You won't be able to. You can't keep up. Just listen and absorb what we're saying, and every week we'll have the previous week for you in an enhanced CD where you can put it on your computer or whatever, and you can really study it at your leisure. Everybody with me? Everybody with me? 
Good. Okay. So you can go out there and get those, or you can go online free and get that same material. But today we're ready to launch into our next letter, and that is the letter of 1 Corinthians. So are we ready? We're ready. All right, here we go. Paul came to Corinth in uh, between 50 and 51 AD. We're not positive the exact year. Directly after being in the city of Athens. And in Acts chapter 18, we learn what went on in Corinth. Paul led a bunch of people to Christ. He established a church. And then he stayed at that church in Corinth for 18 months discipling the young believers that he had led to Christ. Now, the city of Corinth occupied a hugely strategic geographical location in the ancient world. Let me show you a map. It sat on a four-mile isthmus that connected mainland Greece, where Athens was, to the Peloponnesus, where Sparta was, And we need to understand that the journey around the southern part of Greece was extremely hazardous. And so what sailors would do instead is they would come to this four-mile isthmus and they would transport their ship and their cargo across this isthmus so they didn't have to sail around the southern part of Greece. Now today, there's a canal that exists through this four-mile isthmus. It was completed in 1893, and it's still in use, active use today. But of course, at the time of the Apostle Paul, there was no canal. And so at the time of Paul, the sailors used two different methods to get their goods across this isthmus. Number one, if they had a big ship, what they would do is unload all the cargo on one side of the isthmus, transport it on land to the other side, and then load it onto a different ship docked and waiting on the other side. Now, method number two is if it was a little ship, they took the whole ship out of the water, moved it over land, and then refloated it on the other side, and away it went. Now, because of all of this commercial traffic and all of this trade and all of these people and money going through Corinth, at the time of the Apostle Paul, Corinth had become the chief city in the nation of Greece. Not Athens, not Sparta, but Corinth. It had a population of about 700,000 people, and it was renowned for its sexual immorality and its debauchery. As you can imagine, with people coming from all over the world, with every kind of moral background in and out of this town, it became quite a cesspool of immoral behavior and was renowned for that. Okay, so that's the city of Corinth. Let's take a look now at the letter, the first letter that Paul wrote the church at Corinth. In 53 AD, the Apostle Paul left Corinth after 18 months there discipling the believers, and he returned home to the city of Antioch where that was his home church. He stayed there about a year, and then he left again on his third missionary journey, which took him to Ephesus in Turkey, modern-day Turkey. And Paul spent two years in the city of Ephesus 
discipling the new believers that he had led to Christ there. And it's while he was in Ephesus that he began to hear about some trouble that was going on in Corinth. Sin, disobedience to God, deep problems. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 11 says, Paul writes the Corinthians and says, For I have been informed concerning you by Chloe's people. Stop for a moment. Chloe was a lady who apparently lived in Corinth, was a believer, and her people, apparently traveling through Ephesus, had told Paul about the troubles and the bad things that were going on in Corinth. And so Paul decided to write them about these things. More than that, the Corinthians themselves had actually written to Paul asking him about certain Christian life issues. We know this because Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, 1, Now, concerning the things about which you wrote me, and then he goes on to talk about a variety of Christian life issues. And so, 1 Corinthians really has two separate parts. Part number one, chapters 1 through 6, is where Paul confronts the Corinthians about the sin that is going on there in their church that Chloe's people told him about. Remember, they didn't write and tell Paul about what's in chapters 1 through 6. They didn't want him to know about that. But then part 2, chapters 7 through 16, Paul addresses the issues about which they did write him in this letter that they sent him saying, to you, Paul, we got this question, we got that question. Everybody with me? Yes? All right, good. And as we read 1 Corinthians, we discover that Paul addresses a ton of spiritual issues because this church had a ton of spiritual problems. Let me tell you what some of them are. In chapters 1 through 4, Paul addresses divisions and disunity and backbiting and gossip that's going on inside the church family there that he heard about from Chloe's people. In chapter 5, Paul addresses grossly immoral behavior going on in the church that the church had not dealt with that he heard about from Chloe's people. In chapter 6, Paul addresses believers suing other believers in secular courts that he heard about from Chloe's people in chapter 6. Paul also addresses unbiblical teaching about sex that was being taught in the church and practiced in the church of Corinth that he heard about from who? Chloe's people, right. Then in chapter 7, Paul talks to them about confusion they had over marriage and divorce. He also, in chapters 8 through 10, talks about how to correctly handle our freedom in Christ because the Corinthians were incorrectly handling it. In chapters 11 through 14, Paul talks about the role of women and the celebration of the Lord's Supper and the practice of spiritual gifts, especially charismatic gifts, speaking in tongues, etc. In chapter 15, he talks about heresy that was being taught in Corinth about the resurrection. And finally, in chapter 16, he talks about confusion that was going on in Corinth regarding financial giving to the Lord. You say, wow, Lon, this church must have been in a mess 
Well, it was a mess. By, by far, the Corinthian church ended up becoming the most carnal and sinful church that the Apostle Paul ever established. And you know how people will come up to you sometime and they'll say, hey, you know what? We need to go back and we need today to be like the early church. Well, make sure you ask them which one. Because if they want to go back and be like the church of Corinth, you don't want to go there. No, this church was an absolute mess. All right? So that gives you enough background that when you go and read the book, you know what's going on. But we want to stop now and we want to ask our most important question. And you know what that is, right? Okay. And you've, you've missed this, yes? Okay. You've been pining for this, yes? Okay, I know. All right, so all of you guys at Loudon and everybody at Prince William and Bethesda and on our internet campus and here at Tyson's, here we go. Are you ready? Nice and loud. Here we go. One, two, three. Feels good, doesn't it? I know. It gives me a warm feeling too. You say, Lon, so what? Well, friends, there, the so what today is there, there's no way we can cover everything in the book of 1 Corinthians in what the time we have left. So what I want to do is just pick one vital spiritual truth that Paul went over in this letter, and we'll talk about it, all right? That's the best we can do today. And, and the truth that I want us to talk about comes out of 1 Corinthians chapter 2, but I have to give you a tiny bit of background in order for us to be able to understand what's going on. If you remember, we said earlier that Paul came to Corinth directly from the city of Athens. We'll show you a map. It's not a very far journey at all. Athens was home at this time to the greatest philosophical minds in the world. They met and they debated at a place called Mars Hill, which is a little hill right below the Parthenon. And they would meet here all day. It's called the Areopagus in Greek, Mars Hill in Latin. And they would debate philosophical issues, intellectual issues. And one day they met the Apostle Paul. Acts chapter 17 tells us about this in Athens. And they invited him to come to Mars Hill and to address all of these philosophers. And so imagine now, suddenly, Paul finds himself in front of the most brilliant minds in all the world with an open invitation to talk to them about Jesus Christ. Amazing, huh? And he launches into his sermon. Now, I just want to say before we look at this sermon, we will not, we'll look at part of it, that many commentators believe this is the greatest sermon Paul ever preached in the New Testament. I respectfully disagree. I actually believe it's the worst sermon that he ever preached in the New Testament. And I want us to look at it, and then I want to try to tell you why I believe that. All right, so here we go. Here's Paul's sermon in front of these intellectuals on Mars Hill. Acts 17, verse 22. Men of Athens, Paul says, I observe that you're very religious. And while I was examining the objects of your worship here in town, I found an altar inscribed to an unknown God. This is the God that I proclaim to you. As the Lord of heaven and earth, he made the world and all things in it, 
and he does not live in temples made with hands. For in him we all live and move and have our being, even as one of your own poets has said, for we are his offspring. And having overlooked our times of ignorance, God now declares to people everywhere that they must repent, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed, having given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. Now at this point, the philosophers booed him off the stage and his message was over. Verse 34, but a few men joined Paul and believed along with a woman named Damaris. Next verse, and after these things, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. Now here's what I want you to see. Friends, every other place the Apostle Paul preached, large numbers of people came to Christ, but not in Athens. Every other place the Apostle Paul preached, he left behind a church, but not in Athens. In fact, as far as we know, Athens is the only place Paul ever ministered where he failed to establish a church. We have no mention of the Church of Athens in any of the writings of any of the church fathers. Apparently, there was no church here. And the point that I'm trying to make is that I believe something went drastically wrong in Athens, and the question is, what was it? And we don't have to fish around for the answer because in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, where we're now going, Paul tells us the answer, what was wrong. Listen to what he says to the Corinthians. He says, 1 Corinthians 2, 1, when I came to you in Corinth, and where did he come from? Directly from where? From Athens, right? I did not come to you with eloquence of speech or high-sounding wisdom. For I resolved to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. My message, he says, and my preaching in Corinth were not in persuasive words of human wisdom, but were with the Holy Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on the power of God. Now listen to me. The Apostle Paul is not stressing this point. The Apostle Paul is not saying these things for no reason. He's reacting to a serious mistake that he feels he made in Athens. Look what he says. He says to the Corinthians, I did not come to you with eloquence of speech or high-sounding wisdom like I tried to use in Athens. I did not use persuasive words of human wisdom like I tried to use in Athens. Instead, Paul says, I resolve to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified, which is not what I based my sermon on in Athens. You guys with me? You see what I'm talking about? Yeah? Listen, if you compare Paul's message 
on Mars Hill in Athens to every other sermon that he preached in the Bible, in the New Testament, it is radically different from all the rest of them. And let me tell you how it's different. Would you notice that on Mars Hill, Paul never mentioned the holiness of God. He never mentioned the sinfulness of man. He never mentioned the reality of hell. He never mentioned the inability of man to save himself. He never mentioned the virgin birth. He never mentioned the deity of Christ. He never mentioned the sinless life of Christ. He never mentioned Jesus' death on the cross. He never mentioned Jesus' shed blood as the one and only payment for sin that God accepts. He never mentioned that Jesus was the one and only exclusive way to get to heaven. And he barely mentioned the resurrection at the end when they booed him off the stage. Now, why was this? Well, I believe that Paul left these elements out in order to try and repackage the gospel for these Athenian philosophers to make it more intellectual to them, to make it less offensive to them, to make it more relevant to them. But what Paul learned in trying to do this is that there is a limit beyond which we cannot go in doing this without robbing the gospel of its power, as indicated by the very meager results that he had there in Athens spiritually. And this is why he said to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 2, from now on, I am resolved to know nothing and to preach nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. I'm not going to try to schmaltz it up with intellectualism. I'm not going to try to schmaltz it up with philosophy. I'm just going to preach Jesus and him crucified. You guys got me? You tracking with me? Okay. Now, I think for us as the church of Christ today, and for you and me as individual followers of Christ today, this is a message that we desperately need to hear. Look, folks, there is nothing wrong with trying to make the gospel relevant to people. In fact, one of our core values as a church is that the gospel needs to be shared with people in a relevant way. We're all for that, but we must not eviscerate the gospel. We must not cut the heart out of the gospel in an attempt to do this. And what is the heart of the gospel? Let me remind you, the heart of the gospel is the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man and the reality of hell and the inability of man to save himself and the virgin birth and the deity of Christ and Christ's sinless life and his death on the cross and his shed blood as the only payment for sin God will accept, and his plan of salvation as the exclusive way that people get to heaven, and the resurrection as the supreme proof that all of this is true. This is the heart of the gospel. Amen? And you know, many times today, we're tempted to omit parts of this. We're tempted to omit using the word sin. We're tempted to omit talking to people about hell. 
we're tempted to omit mentioning the blood of Christ. We're tempted to omit saying that Jesus is the one and only way to get to heaven because we know that these are the very issues that offend the people. But, friends, the true message of the cross, that we're sinners in the sight of a holy God, that we are powerless to save ourselves, and that only by repenting and humbling ourselves and relying on the shed blood of Jesus, only by doing that can we get to heaven. No matter how we repackage these truths, they are going to offend people. This is why Paul talked in Galatians chapter 5, verse 11, about the offense of the cross. And what Paul learned in Athens is that we cannot remove the offense of the cross without destroying the power of the cross. May I repeat that? We cannot remove the offense of the cross without destroying the power of the cross. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not talking about us being offensive. I mean, if we're offensive in the way we present Christ to people, that's a different matter. We're not talking about that. We are saying that in the message of the cross, there is an offense to people's flesh. There is an offense to people's pride. There is an offense to people's self-reliance that cannot be removed without removing the message and the power of the cross itself. And let me just say this. If you're here today and you're a born-again, regenerated, saved from hell and on your way to heaven believer in Jesus, I guarantee you, you didn't get to where you are today by somebody presenting to you a repackaged gospel that left out the offense of the cross. That's not how you got here. Amen? So, friends, why in the world would we present that to somebody else then? Huh? If it didn't get you to where you are today, why in the world would you offer it to somebody else? So let me conclude and say this. Look, when it comes to sharing Christ with people, of course, we want to be loving. Of course, we want to be sensitive. Of course, we want to be gentle. Of course, we want to be relevant and we want to be respectful. Of course we do. But above all else, we want to be straight up in telling people the true gospel. Can I get an amen or who ya or something for that? All right. You say, but Lon, when you tell people the true gospel and you put all these pieces in it that you're talking about, people think you I mean, people, it makes you look foolish. It makes you look uneducated. People accuse you of being intolerant. People accuse you of being judgmental. You know, they think you're an idiot. Well, hey, people considered Paul a fool for Christ. He even said that. He said, 1 Corinthians 4.10, for we are considered fools for Christ's sake. So, if somebody considers you a fool for telling them the true gospel, hey, at least you're in good company. Huh? And let me tell you why. There's a reason why people think this about us when we give them the true message. Paul said, 1 Corinthians 1.18, for the message of the cross is, what's the next word? Foolishness. Foolishness to those 
who are perishing. Friends, to people who are spiritually blind and they're spiritually dead and they're spiritually dark. They think the gospel is foolishness and they're going to think you're a fool for telling it to them. But, the verse says, to those of us who are being saved, Christ has saved us and opened our eyes and we see it is the power of God. You know what? It's okay if somebody considers you and me fools for the right reason. And if the right reason is we're telling them the true gospel, then that's okay. It's not the gospel's fault. The problem doesn't lie with the gospel. The problem lies with the heart of the person you're talking with. You understand me? And we pray for their heart, that they'll come to the light. But don't get intimidated. You're not foolish. And your message is not foolish. The people who are listening to it, God help them, are being foolish. You with me? All right. What's our memory verse? We've been saying it, but it fits here. Say it with me. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentiles. My fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, listen to me. The uneviscerated gospel, the uncompromised gospel, this is where the power of God resides. The power to save people's souls, the power to change people's lives. So I say to you, as my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, let's worry a lot more about giving out the true message of the cross faithfully and honestly and authentically, and let's worry a lot less about what people think of us. Amen? Amen. And we've got some resources to help you at all of our campuses. We have a CD out in your lobby entitled How to Have a New Life. It's all about the story of Nicodemus, and it's all about the true message of the cross. Take as many as you can use and give them to people and say, hey, this CD will tell you how to know for sure you're going to heaven. That's important. Wouldn't you like to know that? Here. And we also have my life story, which includes the gospel message. Now we have it in English, we have it in Spanish, we have it in Mandarin, all of which are in our lobbies, and we're in the process of translating it into Filipino, into Arabic, into Vietnamese, into Korean. So no matter who you meet, you got one for them. It may take you a minute to flip through them, but you got one for them, all right? And to carry them in your car, keep them in your desk at work, put them in your purse, and to have these things ready to share with people the true message of the cross. It is the power of God. Let's not eviscerate it. Let's not compromise it. Let's not take the heart out of it. Let's give it out the way it is. And you know what? If somebody thinks you're a fool, what better thing could you and I be called than fools for Christ? Amen? Amen. All right. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for speaking to us today from your word. And inspire us, I pray, to rejoice in the notion that we could be called fools for Christ. Lord Jesus, if, 
If we're foolish, it's only because the people that we're sharing with are dark in their heart and they don't understand the beauty and the light of the gospel. So we pray for them and ask you for all of these people that we love and care about to open their hearts and their eyes by the power of your spirit so they see. And suddenly they realize that instead of being fools, that we're wise people for having shared Christ with them. God, send us out into our city to be emissaries and ambassadors for Jesus. And if we're thought to be fools for Christ, help us be proud of that. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. And what did God's people say? What would you say? Amen. Amen.